0: hub and spoke audio collective Before we start the show, I need to ask you Sunish fans for a quick favor. I'm always trying to make the show better, and to do that, I need your ideas. At the Sunish website, there's a new survey designed to help me figure out what listeners like or don't like about the show, and what I could be doing to make the podcast more useful or more entertaining. It only takes a few minutes to respond. And as a small thank you, I'll enter your name in a drawing to win your choice of a Soonish coffee mug, or a copy of 12 Tomorrows, the science fiction anthology I edited for the MIT Press. To share your ideas, just go online now to soonishpodcast.org slash survey. That's soonishpodcast.org slash survey. And thanks.
1: The future is shaped by
0: technology. But technology technology is shaped by us. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Rausch. And most of the time, what we do here on the show is look at the near future. I've always felt that the most powerful force shaping that future is technology. It's the one big force that makes the present feel different from the past. And it's the force that'll make the future feel different from the present. But that force isn't impersonal. It doesn't come from outside society. It comes from us. We all make choices every day about which technologies we want to use in our lives. And that's the meaning of the motto that you hear at the top of the show. But just because we have choices about technology doesn't mean that we always choose well. And today, instead of taking you to the near future, I want to take you in the opposite direction, to the near past. I'm going to look at a bit of history from my hometown of Boston that turns out to be a perfect case study in how and why we sometimes make the wrong choice. It's a story that's almost completely unknown, even to people who live here in Boston. Heck, I didn't even know about it myself until I was out walking in my neighborhood one day in 2016, and I stumbled across an obscure plaque on the lawn of the Register of Deeds. It had been put up by the Cambridge Historical Commission more than 40 years ago. Always read the plaque. I was astonished to learn when I did read this plaque that my hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts,
1: our fair city,
0: was home to one of the world's first monorail systems. The experimental test track was in place from 1884 to 1894, and it was intended as the prototype for a regional rapid transit system that would have made Boston into a kind of steampunk utopia. The city would have been crisscrossed by these marvelous tubular trains that looked like they were designed by Captain Nemo, which I think would have been amazing. But of course I would say that, because I'm a major monorail fanboy, You know how Roman Mars, over at 99% Invisible, says that every city deserves a well-designed flag? Well, I think every city deserves a well-designed monorail. The fact is that when you compare monorails to other forms of mass transit, like subways or light rail, monorails stand above the crowd, so to speak. They're faster, safer, and cheaper to build. And they're just cooler. To hear why, you can go back to Soonish Season 1, Episode 2. Or you can just trust me for now. The point is, we never got that awesome steampunk version of Boston. Because in 1887, the East Cambridge Monorail Project got badly derailed. And the story of the track not taken is what I'm going to tell you about today. That story started right here. I'm standing next to a busy six-lane boulevard in East Cambridge called Monsignor O'Brien Highway. To be specific, I'm at 225 Monsignor O'Brien Highway. The building at this address today is a big four-story factory owned by the Superior Nut Company. Inside, they roast almonds and cashews. And on a breezy day, I can smell a truly luscious aroma from my own apartment half a mile away. But back in the 1880s, before this neighborhood went nuts... This was called Bridge Street. It crossed a tidal marsh called Miller's River, which at that point was gradually being filled in to make new land. And if you've been standing here at 225 Bridge Street in 1884, you would have been looking at the headquarters for the Migs Elevated Railway Company. This is where an inventor and Civil War veteran from Tennessee named Josiah Vincent Miggs built the demonstration track for his patented monorail system. There was a shed here that sheltered a steam locomotive a tender, and a passenger car, all built using Miggs's unusual tubular design and tilted wheels. There was a single iron track that exited the shed, turned left in a tight half circle, and went back past the shed. The track went along at ground level for about 300 feet, and then it climbed up to a section built on posts 14 feet above the ground. This elevated section curved again to the left and crossed over Bridge Street, leaving room below for traffic and horse-drawn streetcars. The track stopped on the other side of Bridge Street, over what's now a parking lot for a Holiday Inn. Between 1884 and 1894, thousands of riders were whisked back and forth on Miggs's test track at up to 20 miles per hour. And the reason I can sort of visualize all this today is that Miggs included copious diagrams and maps in a book he published in 1887. The book was called The Miggs Railway the reasons for its departure from ordinary practice, and how and why a safe railway is possible.
1: The track was built so as to test every kind of way as to its quality, strength, curves, grades, post settings, and the safety of its form and material. Every engineering difficulty which could possibly occur in any situation was put into the track and successfully overcome.
0: That's Joe Miggs in his own words, voiced for us by audio producer Charles Gustine, From the Awesome History Podcast, Iconography.
1: The location purposely selected for the experiment of setting foundations for the tracks was the worst to be found. The entire surface being made land by filling the refuse of the city, dumped upon the dark mud, silt, and wash of Miller's River, covered in by order of the Board of Health. If a post supported railway could be built here without inordinate cost, it could be built anywhere in Boston, or even about its marshy suburbs.
0: Now, when Migs wrote Anywhere in Boston, he really meant it, because he had what you might call a one-track mind. He looked at the streets of 1880s Boston, and he saw a chaotic tangle of horses, pedestrians,
2: horse-drawn carriages, and horse-drawn streetcars, and he wanted to fix it. So um, all of these horse-drawn streetcars funneled into Boston in a hub-and-spoke system and created a great deal of congestion. So the first thought in the Boston area was that they needed to build elevators.
0: That's Charlie Sullivan. Since 1975, he's been the executive director of the Cambridge Historical Commission. He's the only historian I could find who knows anything about the Miggs monorail project. In fact, he's the guy who wrote that plaque that I originally stumbled across. Now to hear Charlie tell it, Miggs looked at Boston's congested downtown, and he imagined a network of steam-powered trains sailing overhead, 15 to 20 feet above the street, Miggs knew that railway companies in New York were already building elevated lines in lower Manhattan. But the idea there was to put standard dual-track trains up on stilts, where they ended up throwing smoke and cinders and shadows over the street below. If you've ever visited New York's High Line, take that and then imagine miles of those elevated tracks crisscrossing all of Manhattan. Miggs knew that he didn't want Boston's system to look anything like that.
2: Uh, Meggs came along uh, and in the early 1880s uh, developed his concept of a monorail that would be a single track or a track on a single line of uh, posts that would run down the center of a street. He probably looked at the New York elevated technology and said, "This is really dumb. You know, we can make it a lot simpler and um, and have the same same good result."
0: The heart of Meggs's idea was to build an elevated railway system with a slimmer profile so that it wouldn't interfere with what he referred to as light and air.
1: By the advice of Council, I called together many persons interested in street railways and sought their alliance. They agreed that my models offered the best plan, with the least obstruction of light and air, with the greatest capability for turning crooked streets, and for this reason, the only solution of the difficulties of street railway traffic suitable to Boston. We have built our way at East Cambridge within eight feet, of the windows of a frame dwelling, and it was declared by the woman living in the house that during the passage of our train at all speeds, she was less disturbed by the passage of our engine than by the horse cars in the street. It is self-evident to anybody who inspects it that light and air are not at all interfered with. Everybody who knows anything of the history of elevated trains in New York knows exactly the contrary to be the case.
0: Well, everybody likes light and air, right? And, as it turned out, even before Miggs built his test track, the people of Boston fell in love with his idea.
1: The people want elevated roads. We sent out many, many thousand circulars, attempting to instruct the people of the city as to my invention and its effects upon property. The result was that 64,000 citizens of Boston signed petitions in favor of permitting me to try my system.
0: In the 1880s, the population of Boston was only about 360,000 which means that, if Miggs's figure is correct, more than one in six residents signed Miggs's petition. But one of the strange things about this whole story is that nobody really knows much about Joe Miggs, the man, or where he got his monorail idea.
2: Yeah, well, Joe Miggs is still pretty much a mystery. He comes out of Tennessee, uh, born in the 1840s, uh, served in the Civil War had been a railroad mechanic, um, ended up in Boston in the 1870s, and um, had this concept for urban mass transit.
0: We do know that Miggs grew up in Nashville and worked as an apprentice engineer on the Memphis and Charlestown Railroad. When the Civil War came, he joined the Union Army, but he resigned due to injury, and he spent the rest of the war in Washington, D.C., developing his skills as a tinkerer. After the war, Miggs became a kind of protege to a figure named Benjamin Butler. Butler was a former Union general and Massachusetts congressman who was kind of the Donald Trump of his day. He owned cotton mills and cartridge factories in Lowell, Massachusetts. But his family had also made an illicit fortune, selling goods to the Confederacy during the war. Butler and Miggs met in Washington, and after the war, Miggs moved to Lowell to run one of Butler's cartridge factories. Butler became a big supporter of Miggs's monorail idea, possibly because he saw money in the whole scheme. And after Butler became governor of Massachusetts in 1883, he helped Miggs get a charter to build his elevated railway in downtown Boston. The charter basically gave Miggs the right to use the airspace above Boston's streets for his monorail tracks. But there was one little problem. The streetcar industry hated Miggs' plan. And their reason was pretty predictable. If Bostonians had a convenient way to ride above the street, they'd stop paying to ride those horse-drawn cars on the street. So lobbyists for the streetcar companies forced the state legislature to put a minor condition into Miggs' charter. Before Miggs could get final permission to build the railway, he'd have to prove the concept by building a working prototype. So that's what he did, using money borrowed from Butler and land in East Cambridge borrowed from a local meatpacker.
2: The track was a a loop that... um included some steep grades and tight curves, and basically proved his concept. Um, It showed that he had a highly workable concept for a monorail uh, that would have been steam-powered, but uh, would have been probably less intrusive than the Manhattan locomotive-hauled elevated trains.
1: We have tried all we could to break down our track and disable our engine, for if it could be done, it was to be done in an experimental yard. It is but fair to say that since we made the tests, we have carried many thousand passengers over these grades, angles, and curves, which in a properly constructed road would never occur. Yet the motion of the train was so regular, easy, and noiseless that the passengers did not know or suspect what sort of road they were riding over.
0: Now this is where I've got to take a minute to talk about Miggs's actual design, and why it was so different from the other elevated railways being built at that time. The track itself was a simple iron girder, a few feet high, with a flange at the bottom. Each wheel truck on MIGS's monorail cars had four wheels, two drive wheels, and two support wheels. The drive wheels were mounted horizontally. Under hydraulic pressure, they'd be brought together until they squeezed the central girder hard enough to pull the train forward. The support wheels were mounted at a 45-degree angle to the central girder, forming a kind of V-shape that rested on the flanges and gripped the rail like a clenched fist. Now, if you're having trouble visualizing that, you can just check out the pictures at our website, soonishpodcast.org. The key thing to understand about the design is that Miggs thought it would be more stable under unbalanced loads. If a strong wind came along, or if there were ever an accident, the cars basically couldn't come off the track. Also, because of the way the wheels pivoted, Mix's trains had an extremely tight turning radius. That meant he could build the tracks to easily go around the crooked corners of downtown Boston. But all that stuff with the wheels was going on underneath the train. To a bystander, standing on Bridge Street in 1884, the most striking thing about the MIG system would have been the cars themselves. If you took a conventional train car and sliced right through it, the cross-section would be more or less square. But not MiG's train. His cars were round, almost like they were designed to whoosh through a pneumatic tube.
2: Well, I mean, these, these trains do look odd because they're, uh, they're cylindrical. They um, look like uh, sausages riding along an elevated track. Think of a Wienermobile riding on a stick. <laughs> that seems to have been a, a 1880s version of streamlining. They don't look like conventional railroad cars. They look like something quite futuristic. Um, they look like uh, Jules Verne could have um, sketched this for one of his, his novels.
0: And that Wienermobile design wasn't just for looks. Miggs argued in his book that giving the cars a cylindrical design made them stronger, required less material, and cut down on wind resistance. But what really mattered about Miggs' system was that it worked. The design may have looked a little crazy, but three years of testing gave Miggs time to overcome every possible technical
2: objection. The system was operated uh, for a number of years, um, moved large numbers of people on demonstration rods, and um, seemed to be entirely practical. So at this point, in a
0: perfect world, the Massachusetts legislature would have told Miggs, hey, cool invention. You've clearly met the testing requirements. So now go and build your monorail all over Boston. But that's not what happened. By 1887, after all that testing, Miggs had become even more of a threat to the streetcar lobby.
2: So I think it's a war between uh, two different means of moving people, Um, you had a street railway system by the 1880s that was highly developed and um, uh, was moving a lot of people and was making a lot of money for its investors. Uh, So any kind of elevated system or subway system, any other kind of competing technology would have been opposed by them simply because it was disruptive uh, and destructive to their investment. In the winter of eighteen eighty seven, streetcar
0: operators decided to do something drastic to protect their investment. If you turn to the very last page of Miggs's book, you'll find this sad postscript. At four
1: AM on the morning of February fourth, eighteen eighty seven, an incendiary fire burned the greater part of the shed containing my engine, tender, and car. But for the police and fire departments, my whole train would have been destroyed by the intensity of the fire built around it. As it was the most magnificent car ever built was melted down by the furnace into which it was thrust. Its metal plates were melted down, and the
0: little wood and upholstery burned out. No criminal charges were ever filed,
2: but it was pretty clear what had happened. Foul play was suspected. It, um, you know, there was just a lot of hostility to this that never abated. Uh, I think um, you know, street railway men um, saw this as a huge threat. Um, They employed thousands of of men and horses, um, all of whom could see their jobs um, changing uh, or being threatened by something like this. There were a number of street railway strikes in the 1880s. It was a volatile time in the industry. And, um, yeah, uh, it's certainly conceivable that that kind of hostility resulted in arson here.
0: Now, Miggs was a very stubborn guy, and this was not his first experience with vandals. So his defiant tone after the fire was totally in character.
1: This is the last of a series of attempts of a like nature to hinder my progress. First, out of malice, my models were mutilated and broken at the State House. Then the building, number 89 Court Street, where my lecture room and models were placed, was set on fire. They have mutilated the car at East Cambridge by cutting and other petty annoyances. These criminal acts are merely futile and grieve me but do not hinder the enterprise in the least.
0: But the truth is that after the fire, the Miggs Elevated Railway Company never really bounced back. Benjamin Butler left the governor's office in 1884, and Miggs' battle with the state legislature dragged on for years. He didn't get final approval to start building his monorail system until 1894. But by then, he had several new problems. In 1888, a storm later dubbed the Snow Hurricane dumped five feet of snow on Boston and paralyzed the city for weeks. That strengthened the argument that if Boston was going to get a new rapid transit system, it might be a good idea to build it underground. On top of that, Miggs was utterly convinced that his locomotives should run on steam and coal at a time when most transit systems were switching over to electricity. His stubbornness scared off most of his investors, and in the end, it cost him almost everything. By 1896, he was out of cash. All he really had left was the charter rights to the airspace above Boston streets, and he decided to sell those to his remaining
2: investors. The investors went back to the legislature for permission to build a conventional elevated um, system in Boston and prevailed. Um, The company was bought out by J.P. Morgan eventually and built uh, the rapid transit system that we have in Boston today. It's now the MBTA. I asked Charlie Sullivan, if he ever allowed himself to imagine
0: what Boston might look like today if Miggs's competitors hadn't torched his beautiful monorail.
2: Well, almost all of our elevated lines are gone now, and um, and these probably would uh, have disappeared too, uh, replaced by subways or relocated to active uh, rail lines. Um, But it's interesting to think that something as light as this might have hung on longer Um, and long enough to be upgraded and modernized into a 20th century technology.
0: In other words, maybe there's a parallel universe where today's MBTA still uses a single-track system. Maybe parts of that system are above ground. Maybe other parts are at grade or below ground. Maybe it has all the advantages MiGs touted with tracks that are easier and cheaper to build and trains that run faster and more safely. Not to mention all that light and air. But that's not the universe we live in. In our universe, financiers from New York City gave Boston the MBTA, with a helping hand from the streetcar lobby's arsonists. And speaking as a monorail believer, I'd argue that our 19th century forebears not only made the wrong choice, but they made it in the wrong way. If streetcar operators had given Migs a chance to compete for customers in a fair and open market, his system might have prevailed. Instead, they resorted to legal ledger domain and violence. And let's face it, sometimes that's how we roll here in America. In the 1940s, half a century after the MiG system collapsed, the shoe was on the other foot when automotive and petroleum interests bought up dozens of streetcar companies around the US, proceeded to rip out the rails and replace them all with bus lines. So look, we humans always have the power to choose which future we want to live in. That's what this show is all about. But we don't always have a great process for choosing so the decisions we make can be messy, undemocratic, profit-driven, and sometimes downright corrupt. The best plan, with the least obstruction to light and air, isn't always the winner. Sometimes the best plan just ends up as some words on a plaque. Zoonish is written and produced by me, Wade Roush. Our theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. All other music this week from Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Yes, I know every host of every podcast says that, but here's why. On Apple Podcasts, a show's average rating gets displayed right at the top of the page. So the more five-star reviews a show has, the more people will say, hey, that must be a good show, and they'll actually listen. Another great way to support the show is to become a donor on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com sunish soonish check out our awesome rewards and sign up to make a per episode gift at whatever level feels right for you. This season, if you sign up as a new supporter at the $5 per episode level or above, I'll send you a Soonish coffee mug with a new season three logo on it. So along with your daily caffeine, you'll get a little dose of informed optimism. Again, you can check out the mug and all of our other rewards at patreon.com sunish soonish. Thank you so much to all of our current Patreon supporters, including Andy Racina. Bob Mason, Kent and Celia Ramsey, Charles and Gail Mandeville, Daniel Imri Sitanayaka, David Asaf, David Stenman, Deborah Rossum, Elizabeth Blanche, Evan Blanche, Ellen Leantz, and Niels Rote. A special thank you this week to Charlie Sullivan for sharing the story of Joe Miggs, and to voice actor and podcaster extraordinaire Charles Gustine of the Iconography Podcast for bringing Miggs to life. This show is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of smart, independent, idea-driven podcasts. This week, I want to urge you to go subscribe to a great Hub & Spoke show called Culture Hustlers. Host Lucas Spivey drives across the country with a rebuilt 1957 Shasta camper, also known as his mobile incubator and recording studio. And he gets the inside scoop from artists and creators about how they make their living blending art and commerce. One recent episode took Lucas to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he talked at length with the photographer Leandra Lesueur, She describes her work as an attempt to break down the power constructs that marginalize blackness, queerness, and femininity. You can hear Leandra and check out all of Lucas's other episodes at culturehustlers.com. And you can check out all of the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. That's almost it for this episode. Don't forget to fill out our listener survey at soonishpodcast.org slash survey. And... I'd like to thank Nick Anderson, the producer of the Masterpiece Studio Podcast and Ministry of Ideas, for reminding me that you can never play the Simpsons monorail song too many times.
2: But Main Street's still all cracked and broken. Sorry, Mom, the is spoken. Monorail! Monorail!